Chapter 5 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Rev. John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 5 Paul Aboard. Quote, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Unquote. Acts 27, verse 31. Plutarch, in his Lives of Illustrious Men, says that Julius Caesar, on a stormy night, crossing a channel in a light, open boat, quieted the alarm of the oarsmen who were ferrying him by telling them, quote, Pluck up your courage, you carry Caesar. Unquote. This great Roman had faith in his destiny. A secret presentiment bade him believe that he was born to achieve a notable career. He was conscious of power, of resource, and had a profound belief in his star. His reported language sets up a striking parallel to the case of the Apostle Paul. Their state of mind was much the same, and their words were equivalent in meaning. In both of these extraordinary men a thorough, deep-seated conviction found utterance, that they did not belong to the common herd of indifferent, routinary persons of no significance and who had no particular errand in the world. This was not egotism, nor personal vanity in either of them. It was a presentiment, a persuasion that they were born to effect something memorable and enduring on earth. This forefeeling has often been a note of forceful men and women. Not infrequently they have had an inkling or subconscious surmise that they were born for some important end, to deliver a telling stroke or act an essential part in the drama of human affairs, and that they were invulnerable until the time was ripe and their hour had come. This has been a trait of large, oracular, and effective natures, and it has naturally operated to relieve them of fear, of anxiety, of doubt, and has endued them with magnificent courage and composure even in perilous times and when men's hearts were failing them. Unquestionably, it is a source of mighty strength for one to feel that he has a work to do, something of value to accomplish, a chief end, that he is not a waif, an autumn leaf blown about by the winds, a seaweed tossed by the billow, an idle, oarless boat adrift on the sea, but that he lives under a providential law and is strictly immortal until the inevitable purpose concerned in his being is exhausted. This, I suspect, has really been the secret strength of great souls, has nerved and sustained them, and made them swifter than eagles and stronger than lions, in the midst of tumults and distractions. Indeed, every one, great or small, needs something of this kind to give him balance and poise, alacrity and confidence to meet the fierce paradoxes of life. We must live from within. We must be fed out of ourselves. We must be guided by an inner light. We must draw from a secret fountain of strength. We must lay at the base of us certain great beliefs, not merely as articles of a creed, but as vital experiences which shall encourage, inspire, and sustain us. Without this, life is a shabby, second-hand affair, lasting by the mere grace of accidents and lucky hits and fortuitous circumstances, snatching frantically at one windfall and another to keep it alive and afloat, devoid of depth, power, purpose, direction, joy, or any great elemental law or principle. Paul was one of the great masculine souls of our species because he had this divination, this strong undercurrent of certitude that he was allied to the god of history and had a part to play in the evolution of a divine plan. 
At this crisis he had appealed to Caesar from the prejudice and malice of the Jews, who were bent upon destroying him, and was on his voyage to Rome. Both the shipmaster and centurion must have been impressed by his commanding bearing, and that a layman in nautical matters should express such decided opinions, without reserve, in so critical a posture of affairs as a shipwreck. But Paul was by instinct a commander, one of those whose presence is a tower of strength, to whom others look and upon whom they lean. There are individuals who inject enthusiasm and hope wherever they move. They have self-possession, self-reliance, address, the rare faculty of infecting the timid and inert with their calmness, positiveness, and equality with the occasion. They are able because they seem to be able, and round such the feeble, frightened, and cowardly gather, as iron filings are drawn toward a magnet. Paul had the constitutional qualifications of a leader. He was sagacious, bold, and prompt, no grain of indecision in his makeup, a man of strong convictions, and who never faltered in giving them effect. These qualities are conspicuous on the voyage to Rome. A passenger and a prisoner, it yet does not occur to him to be officious or meddlesome, to offer his unprofessional opinion even to men who were supposed to understand their craft. With the sure instinct of a great original man, he knows that he is right, and hence counsels the ship's officers to lie quiet at Crete during the season of storm. When, at length, they had sailed into the big, black heart of it and into chaotic darkness, and heard the breakers dashing against the rocks, Paul points it out as the vindication of his practical wisdom and seamanship, albeit he was a plain Christian preacher and no professional navigator at all. The Roman centurion was evidently impressed by the robust manhood of his prisoner and his native force of character. No doubt he was conscious of a sentiment of respect, admiration, and secret homage for the elevated qualities of this obscure but singular Jew. He felt the pull upon him of that ineffable somewhat that makes the heart adore in the presence of a great man, or a great heroism, or a great quality. This appears from the fact that he would not listen to the proposition to kill Paul in order to prevent the escape of the prisoners. Standing at opposite poles from each other, the soldier recognized unusual power, intellectual and moral kingliness, a columnar personality in Paul, and freely accorded him the benefits rightfully challenged by such a character. After all, it is a great advantage to be constructed and put together on large principles. A mighty soul, a strong, clear, fertile mind, energy, insight, a noble nature, a sound mental and moral organization, these are inestimable goods. You need not set a crown on his head. That man is a king already. His supremacy is soon acknowledged. The crowd makes way for him. Everybody stands out of his light. He requires no scepter, no throne. These he has by birthright, not by tactual succession, but by a divine call. Dr. Johnson, hastily working up a fiction in order to pay his mother's funeral expenses, but that fiction, Resselas, or The Dwellers in the Happy Valley. John Bunyan, the tinker, occupying his leisure in Bedford Jail and producing one of the two immortal works that appeared in the 17th century, one of them Paradise Lost, the other The Pilgrim's Progress, and many another hero in the strife, all go to show that the vital question respecting anyone is not as to his temporal conditions and surroundings, but rather this. What is he fit for? What kind of stuff is he made of? What is the range of his ideas and ambitions? Thus, too, Paul was an insignificant-looking Jew, and all his circumstances argued against him. Nothing in his position gave him right to a hearing, 
save the one incontrovertible fact that he knew more about that particular voyage and the best way of navigating the Mediterranean for that once than the whole shipload. A sectary, the apostle of a heretical faith, an accused man bound over to answer before Caesar's judgment seat, without money, friends, influence, patronage, high connections, he stood forth on the deck amid the howling of the storm and the heaving of the sea, and the straining and plunging and rattling of this dismantled craft, and all the terrifying concomitants of miserable shipwreck, in the superb composure and majesty of intrepid manhood, telling the affrighted crew that even now, at the eleventh hour, should they act upon his instructions, they would at least escape with a whole skin, if not a dry one. It is a fine illustration of the superiority that naturally belongs to capacity, to insight, to breadth of vision. Ordinarily, every man is the best judge in his own calling, and when a cobbler leaves his last, he falls into trouble. But there are also encyclopedic, polylateral minds who surprise us by their range, versatility, and aptitude. Intellect, clarity of vision, incorruptible stern integrity, moral courage, a moral will, a high-souled masculine nature, lifted clean above all that is mean, petty, frivolous, deceitful, faith in God and in a divine purpose, surely these are winning qualities, the only armor that will stand the test of time, of temptation, of peril, and emerge unhurt from fire or flood. But observe again that the ground of Paul's confidence, under the trying circumstances, was a supernatural suggestion. An angel, a vision of some sort, had accosted him during the night, giving assurance that, as for him, he must stand before Caesar. Clearly he believed in an invisible world of mind, will, and moral agency behind this phenomenal scene of nature. Paul believed that personality and purpose reign over the universe, not chance, and that there is possible communion or commerce between the two spheres, of nature and the supernatural, and that finite man may come into a real relation and conference with God. True, the sea ran high, the storm boomed and crashed round them, the ship was falling to pieces, hope had fled, every face was full of blackness and despair. The only blessed ray that shot across the waste and welter came from that strong, glistening angel whom Paul averred he had seen in the crisis of the peril. But that was enough for him. He believed that man is greater than the thunder, the rain, the lightning, greater than the whole realm of physics, that he is not the sport of blind, impersonal forces, but the instrument of a higher will. Paul believed that there is something greater than matter or motion or force, a kingdom of moral ideas, a providential law that could not be drowned in the vasty deep or smitten by thunderbolts. And this doctrine of a moral government, an eternal purpose, running like a thread through all ages, this doctrine that all things work together toward the realization of the best policy for the whole creation, this is, at bottom, the saving clause in our case. Unless this world rests on a transcendental ground, it matters little how soon the Euroclodons rise and blow it to bits. If man have no errand to do in this world, if he be simply born to eat up the corn and to be rolled around with rocks and tombs and trees, if the ideas of God, immortality, duty, righteousness are a mirage, if there be no holy, omnipotent will at the root of things, if time be not the stage for the historical unfolding of an intelligent divine purpose, if God be not gradually working through the slow secular ages toward finer issues and a larger manifestation of himself, 
if earth and man and the whole nature realm are sprung of protoplasmic slime and have been licked into shape by the eternal, inexorable energy of a blind evolution instead of being mighty shadows flung by an ultimate reality. If there be no moral meaning implicated in man or nature, then the sun may well burn out and the globe stop on its axle. It is absolutely necessary to take into account the throne of God, the kingdom of God, the eternal purpose of God in order even to make the world safe to live in, not to speak of any coherent theory of it. That word of the angel to Paul, Fear not, thou must be brought before Caesar, is highly significant in this connection. Most of the ship's company were sailing from Alexandria to Rome upon their own private reasons and for their respective advantage, and if every soul of them had perished in that driving sea, it is not extravagant to say that the dismal event would not have appreciably affected the interests of the race. But Paul was aboard. Below all the cargo, gains, traffic, hopes, expectations involved in that voyage, there lay a vital consideration transcending them all. For the Christian apostle was connected with an order of facts and with an historical development compared with which the commercial ventures of those traders sailing to Italy were the merest trifle. They did not stand related to subsequent history and to the moral education of mankind. Their call to Rome was not in the interest of the new Christian movement, nor in any way linked to the moral progress of the race. Crew and cargo might all have gone to the slimy bottom of the deep on that howling night without irreparable damage to any precious interest or institute the world knows of. But Christianity was aboard. And there is a wide difference in the dignity, value, and excellence both of truths and of men. There are cardinal events, hinges upon which the gates of time turn, and which determine the cast of society and the drift of things. There have been decisive battles in history, of which, had victory perched upon other banners, the civilization, laws, manners, subsequent condition of the world would have been unlike the actual fact. So, too, there have been solitary and singular individuals who have seemed to turn the life of their time into other channels. This contemporary age of ours is largely, if not wholly, what it is because of certain powerful personalities, and fruitful, formative periods antecedent to it, and prodigiously potent and influential that have made it, under God, what it is. The age of Socrates, and later of Aristotle, in Hellas, the age of Julius Caesar and Cicero in Rome, the age of Bacon and Descartes, of the sixteenth century in Europe, which witnessed the thawing and loosening of scholasticism and authority, the age of Luther and the Protestant reformers, the age of Alexander Hamilton and the framers of the American Constitution, and many another age are specimens of formative, prophetic periods that held the seeds of new civilizations and kingdoms of thought, and of cumulative results not yet worked out. Always it is the moral purpose disclosed in the march and evolution of events that is material. The men and things themselves do not amount to much. The men die, and the eras and their contents are rolled up as a garment, but the residual facts left stranded after the tide has ebbed the new idea started, the fresh impulse given, the new direction in which the currents of human society have set, and the altered opinions, methods, fashions, and spirit that come in, this is the supreme interest. This permanent substratum that underlies the transactions of time is really the significant thing, since it is the unfolding of a divine purpose. Hence, Paul saved the ship, 
because it was necessary that he should carry the Christian gospel to the mistress of the then known world, the spiritual life of man was in question. The moral exigencies of the race saved that floundering craft in the Adriatic. Verily, it is a tremendous truth that the world stands for the sake of a moral purpose. Groaning in pain, rocking with earthquakes, belching out fire and smoke from volcanic vents, holding within itself in air and in subterranean centers combustibles that could hurl it into the pit of annihilation, the great and gracious God keeps this earth spinning serenely and securely around its orbit, holding terrific energies in leash and under control subject to the gradual outworking of his perfect idea for the children of men. The world with all its plant and scaffolding stands in order that out of the confusion, rubbish, and uproar shall arise a building of God, a civitas dei, a golden age of regenerated manhood, a final symphony out of all the harsh preludes and tangled discords of this present rehearsal. As the case now stands, the world reminds one of yon straining, dismantled hulk on the stormy Adriatic, seamed with scars, cursed with sin, drenched with tears and human blood, plowed with battle furrows, smoking with ruins, crowded with anxious, pallid faces, the earth has been wheeling along through dark, tempestuous, lawless centuries, some of them so rude and boisterous with carnality and crime that, had it not been for this overruling moral purpose, had it not been that Paul was aboard, that God has in store an immense and magnificent future for the race of man, had it not been for this Christian program, which, when finished, shall vindicate the supreme wisdom and satisfy the highest ideal and challenge the applause of the intelligent creation, there is no reason to suppose that any other consideration would have saved it. What intrinsic value is there in commerce, trade, banking, coal and gold mining, in politics, philosophy or mechanical invention, in any established fact or fixture, to make it worthwhile to perpetuate the human family and save the world from sinking? You cannot find firm footing until you alight upon the continent of moral ideas and the supernatural. All that is bad in the world survives on account of what is good. The selfish, the depraved, the destructive, the obstructive, the animalish, all the vicious elements last only because there is something sound and wholesome left. If there were nothing but corruption and decay, the world would fall to pieces. It is because there are a few grains of salt here and there that society holds together. If there were not a moral ingredient, some pure and high feeling, noble ambition, spotless integrity, heroic self-sacrifice, spiritual faith left among sinful men, the crash would surely come. This imposing materialism and luxurious civilization which men build up and extol will not save society. It is mere splendid rubbish. It is the phosphorescence that glimmers over decaying matter. Apart from character, from faith, from righteousness, from purity, there is no sufficient reason why the world should last twenty-four hours longer. If there be no personal God, no glorious purpose of God, no larger knowledge of God possible, no higher life for the soul, no goal of moral perfection toward which man tends, then what is there in our shops, factories, spindles, turbine wheels, power looms, mechanism of business and banking, or in biology, physiology, and physics, and the whole mundane machinery to keep the world standing. If these be the totality of things, if there are no verities behind and beyond them, if virtue, holiness, redemption from the dominion of sin are not indestructible certainties, if there is no sublime advancing purpose of God leading on the race, 
in one word, if Paul be not aboard, why should this old earth ship fight any longer with monsoons, or labor through the deeps of time? Observe, further, that although the announcement of the mysterious angel was explicit, and Paul's confidence predicated upon it absolute, yet when the crisis came upon which the whole question of safety hinged, Paul's language was practical and peremptory. In an underhand way the sailors had lowered a lifeboat, under pretext of casting anchor, but really as a stratagem to save themselves and abandon the ship. Paul detected the trick, exposed their criminal design, and defeated it. Nevertheless, looking at this incident narrowly, it appears to carry incompatible ingredients. On the one hand, the absolute assurance of rescue without conditions made to Paul in vision. On the other hand, the imposition, at the last moment, of a very stringent condition, the frustration of the seaman's selfish and cruel program. It is obvious that here again crops up the ancient and permanent antagonism between the higher and lower spheres of divine and human agency. The unconditional revelation is made to Paul that he shall certainly go to Rome, and he firmly believes and declares that the event shall be as predicted. But the critical point is that his dogmatic theology does not interfere with his practical seamanship when the emergency arises. I commend Paul's method of dealing with vexed questions in the sphere of religion. His doctrine concerning the nature and attributes of God, the divine omniscience and veracity, serves as an adamantine base upon which to build an unwavering assurance of his personal safety. But mark, he does not push it into an ultraism, a fanaticism, or beat his silly head against rocky mysteries. He listens to the voice of practical reason and declares, quote, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved, unquote. Apart from metaphysical theology and alongside of it, there is also a sphere of second causes and of moral agency and accountability. If the end is foreordained, the means leading up to it are equally necessary. This is the true relation subsisting between the doctrines of revealed religion and the practical duties of life. The doctrines are radically incomprehensible. The nature of God, the mode of his existence and activity, his occupations and enjoyments, his immensity and eternity, directly we attempt to expound these, the mind falls among antinomies and contradictions which will not surrender their secret. It results that our human knowledge is chiefly of conditions, of secondary and efficient causes, of the properties of things, how they act, and how we are to cooperate with them so as to get the best results. It is not a knowledge of what God is, in the whole sweep and amplitude and affluence of his glorious nature, or why he has made the world as it is, or the mystery of man and of sin on the earth. The knowledge of necessary conditions is our humble sphere, and not a knowledge commensurate with the whole range of being as when Paul said to the centurion, quote, If you allow these men to escape, we are lost, unquote, notwithstanding my angel and his heavenly message. Hence it is futile for us to pry into arcana and hidden mysteries, or to inquire, Am I of the elect? What shall be the fate of heathen? Are there few or many that shall be saved? Shall I know my friends in heaven? And much else of the same kind. The right question is, Do I comply with revealed conditions? Do I pray? Do I try daily to come into conscious relation with the Father of Spirits through Jesus Christ? Do I abhor that which is evil? What are my tastes, temper, habits, choices? This exhausts our part just now. Our part is to believe, to obey, to do, to live up to the line of our light, to keep open the sluices of moral sensibility, to beat down Satan under our feet, 
to keep conscience alert and keen and get our horizon widened and rolled back, and meanwhile to leave what lies hopelessly beyond the reaches of our souls to an ampler day. There is in man the speculative reason and the practical reason. The one is critical and prying, seeks out final causes and hidden origins, and gets only a moderate satisfaction at present. The other is articulate, peremptory, positive, and says distinctly, quote, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved, unquote. It does not curiously inquire how prayer affects the mind of God. It says, ask, seek, knock. It does not inquire why God has chosen to reveal himself by an incarnation and by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It simply accepts the transcendent fact and acts upon it. Take Paul's practical logic into your life. He knew two things. One, an inflexible certainty that could not be annulled. The other, a plain, practical duty that must go along with it as its complement. Nor did the two clash. Each stood firm on its own proper ground. So, too, do ye be assured that there is nothing in the mystery of God or in the nature of things to excuse from conscious duty. Duties are ours, even though the doctrines and reasons that underlie them be obscure and unintelligible. End of chapter 5